0: Okay, first thing I want to say is the website is My History Can Beat Up Your We've got a link there to the Patreon. If you want to support the program and unlock over 100 content items not available to the general wheel, then You can do that at patreon.com slash mhcbuip. Yes, so the program you're listening to, it could have been called History Sandwich. You know, 14 years ago, I heard about this thing where if you added sound files to a blog, which is, after all, a web blog, um, and that gets picked up by certain software, you can do what uh, a mini-broadcast on people who have that software on their iPods, and that was called a podcast. So, as you can see, I'm going to talk a little bit about the podcast itself, and if you're a new listener, and this is the first one episode you're listening to, or if you just don't want to hear this, you want to cut through a discussion of history, I'm going to take some listener questions. So just forward about 15 or 20 minutes or so. So in 2006, we launched the podcast. It wasn't the first. I'm not the absolute pioneer by any means. There were a lot of podcasts going. Uh, Twit, This Week in Technology was up. History According to Bob, Skepticality. It is amazing to see the changes between 2006 and now. I'm sure at the time in the invention of radio, people were shaking their fists at NBC coming into the market or the Dumont Network, you know, coming into this uh, when their radio had been a kind of hobbyist choice. So there's something to be aware of. But there definitely was podcasting before Serial and podcasting before Wondery, right? We didn't call the program History Sandwich. We called it My History Can Beat Up Your Politics and there's a reason for that. I always wanted to keep the application of history there, H- using history to look at the politics of the present. And it's a tongue-in-cheek name, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> Whether it's we're getting away from the use of that phrase, which, which you know, maybe even 14 years ago was used more. Or it's just some people take everything literally and I say, okay, I'm not actually trying to beat up anyone. I'm not even actually trying to change your ideology or your politics. I do believe this and still believe it today, as much as I did in 2006, that history can elevate, history can add to the discussion. The first thing that history does is say, you know, we've been here before in some way, not completely the same. But there are comparisons and contrasts if you do it right. So the first thing with history is like, hey, here's what's happened before. Second thing is, how did we get here? What was the evolution? If I'm talking about Civil War pensions and how in the 19th century, in some states, that was an important source of income for older people, how does that inform a discussion about Social Security? Social Security concept if not the program, then just begin with a guy named FDR. These are the type of things I think could be useful in the program. Here's some just some examples of things that aren't new. Things being very partisan. Two parties competing aggressively for the presidency and various offices in state and federal government. A battle over the Supreme Court. Leaking information to press. Lying or misleading the press. Attacking an opponent's patriotism. Uh, calling an opponent a socialist or a communist calling an opponent an authoritarian or a monarchist, saying that a political party will probably be gone in a few years, thinking your side wins because you have a group of intelligent people who made a rational decision, and the other side wins because they're somehow misled, which I called a woody woodpecker. Everybody else is crazy, but I'm okay. Let's see what else isn't new. (laughs) Thinking the press is an objective. You mean like, like it was when the press was gloating over Dewey? or when they were calling Washington a a cheat and a thief, a Nero, primarying somebody that you don't think is towing the party or faction line, voting for someone because they're electable, even though there might be somebody whose issues you agree with more, running an ad, be it a television, radio, or handbill, with an argument about your opponent that is a known exaggeration of their position. These are just some examples of the many things that are new. And way podcasting has changed. Everybody has a podcast now. It's added to discussion. I, I mean, so where where is my history can beat up your politics on that spectrum? Well, according to Libsyn, which is my podcast host, I mean, we're in the top 5% of podcasts. I mean, that's not saying too much because the big numbers are coming from the 1%, like anything else in life, any other business or industry, you know, podcasting has settled right into that. Things have gone down a bit since COVID-19 and lockdowns. I do think the podcast is listened to by commuters and by kind of people in offices with an earphone in one ear and that sort of thing. We're still up there. I mean, there's certainly podcasts that have over time superseded and, and podcasts that have different functions. I mean, I had to cover a lot of bases in the past, I felt, because there wasn't always another podcast addressing like history and current politics at all. So now, I you know, I feel like there's um, there are some good ones. I mean, I do like The Road to Now. Bob and Ben, you know them. I've, I've been on there. They've been on mine. Suggest that. Ohio v. The World, I will always recommend. Alex is doing a great job. It's a very My History Can Beat Up Your Politics style podcast. You know, you might be surprised by this, but I like a podcast like you're wrong about. Um, totally different style from from this, right? uh but i like the banter of the two hosts i like the topics that they cover if they get into a political or history topic sometimes i find myself like well i'm not sure that's right or whatever but still overall good podcast good format and they deserve the popularity they're getting you know there's a lot of different ways to do this there's limitations to what i'm doing here and what i've done for the 14 years it's one person talking and it's do try to get a variety of sources i try to go into book printed sources where I can or journal articles where I can. If I'm going on the web, very often it's Google Books. I do look at web articles and things, but that can change. That can morph. There's still limitations to what one person can uncover or the sources one person can have. So it it should go without saying that. If I do a topic, I'm hopeful you're going out and reading books or listening to other podcasts or to educate yourself. Uh, Good podcast that came along recently long 70s podcast. These guys do a great job with very long takes on things that happened anywhere from the late 60s to the early 80s, the, the quote, long 70s, the period after the revolution of the 60s is what you might say. And they're interesting topics on some obscure things, like an obscure bank robbery that occurred um, by a kind of cult in um, the late 70s, or domestic terror groups happening in San Francisco in the early 70s, to good review of Bright Lights, Big City, and other literature. Highly recommended. And as a Jets fan, in quotes, it's hard to be a Jets fan these days. Uh, their episode on Joe Namath, you know, really uh, touched my heart a bit. So yeah, from the beginning, we've made a decision, which is challenging to not just talk about history. I mean, it would be kind of easy to to just talk about history but to also address in some form directly or indirectly the politics of today. One change I've made over the time, if you listened in 06 or 08 and and you heard those podcasts, you're going to see that. Sometimes I would do like the moral of the story is at the end of the episode. I don't do that as much anymore. I might do it throughout the episode, remind people there's a current event this is close to. I'll let the history talk. And now and and I believe that you as a listener an intelligent human being and can draw your own conclusions and you know And apply it to your own politics. It's not just one American politics. I'm not looking to move change Form your opinion. I'm looking to elevate the discussion if I can do that That's my mandate. I'm done. I'm out You take it from there. That's my feeling about it So i've done a lot less of the kind of like, um Here's the moral of the story. Here's the study guide questions that you need to understand about this history. It's like, no, you know, I traveled through time to tell you this. Yeah, do you get into trouble sometimes? Sure. I mean, I I don't want it to be a choose-your-adventure novel either, and I do find that um, it might be misunderstood. I think there was one episode where I did The Grand Army of the Republic. And I was contrasting it to the Confederate flag issue that in the North, we used to have statues. I mean, there still are some Union soldier statues. They're just not a big deal. Some of them have overgrown or been removed. And there was a time when people had Grand Army of the Republic banners, and you still see GAR in some of the names of monuments and places in the North of the country. Um, It's just not the focus that it might be in, say, Dixie, right, where it's an issue. I, I remember hearing someone on the web and misinterpret that like as, hey, you're you're equating the uh, use of the Confederate flag just because people in the past in the North did something like waved a G.A.R. banner. No, no, that's not what I meant. What I meant is in the North, we were able to move beyond the kind of thinking about the Civil War and perhaps that's a path forward for, you know, for the Confederate flag and Confederate monument issue. But that got misunderstood. And I guess so that, that is the danger if you kind of leave things open.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: There's also things change over time, and this is why I don't want to make a point related to like, I don't want to just talk about politics and then go on for 12 minutes about Obamacare like I might have in in 2010, because um, first of all, it dates the usefulness of an episode and the usefulness to you, perhaps. Um, And also, comparisons, you got to be careful. You know, history just rhymes, and sometimes not even. Sometimes it just is there as a little bit of aspirin, like, hey, we've been through this before, maybe lower the tone of the debate, or, you know, this is the reason, this is what you're experiencing. Here's how it started. You also have to be careful with history. There's many histories, there's many books, there's there's interpretations, misinterpretations. Sometimes on the program, I'll have to actually go back in and sort of do repair work, I feel, on the pop history or even the textbook understanding of a situation so that you have a better context. So you're not using history to beat up politics in an incorrect way. There is nothing original about this concept. This is something that many people do I think a conservative can do this cast. I think a liberal can do this cast. If you go back in history, there are speeches where people are be using history to beat up politics of their day. The most famous example is Lincoln's Cooper Union speech, which is wh- exactly what he does. It's, it's you know, if he had a podcast, maybe that's what he'd do, right? <laughs> but he uses the the framers of the Constitution to beat up the politics that's currently going on around the slavery and the territory issues. That is the... Cooper Union speech. I say that to mean, you know, it's not like I'm the only one who can do this cast. It is difficult. It is challenging. And I think a lot of historians would rather just talk about history or if they're applying it to the politics of today, it's done in a very simple way that isn't going to fly with people who know a little. You know, so you want to get into the complexities of the history and the complexities of the politics today and make sure that matches up, right? You don't just want to say like, Washington was honest, so people, political leaders today should be honest. Like, it just, you, you got to be a little more complex than that. So, podcast started during the Bush administration in 2006, and it really started with a lot um current towards how do you end wars, how do you get into wars, how did we get where we were, You know surrounding the events of the iraq war the use of patriotism as an attack um the misleading the media you know relations with foreign governments and and things like that and it was obviously like topics that applied to the bush administration and i'll freely admit i was not a fan but i did try and i think everyone should try to be as objective as possible and say like well yeah, you, you don't like it, but why are, what do you think are the reasons that the president is trying to do this, and how can we use history to inform that better? And I, th- I see so many times in political debates on Facebook, and guess what, guys? They used to be on theglobe.com before they were on Facebook. You know, in the 90s, I was seeing people go at it. Before there was anything called social media. So this part has not changed. Maybe the amount of people speaking has changed. The way you can coordinate speech and sort of like retweet things and stuff has changed. Ferociousness of political debates. That was going on in the 90s. Um, the reason there's Goodwin's Law, which is about uh, using the Nazi reference on in in political debate, that goes back to the 1980s when people are on machines running DOS bulleted boards. The differences in opinions between Americans is not new and not going away. We all have an uh, obligation to use history to beat up politics. Not just me and not just a few podcasters say it's everyone should be using some context in their political debates and kind of taking that on themselves. And it's human nature when you write something to, um, and it's not human nature, it's trained. Uh, I learned it in, uh, back in college, back at old Stockton State in Pomona, New Jersey, South Jersey. When you write an essay, you have to have a thesis, right? So most people writing a blog post or a uh, comment on Facebook are, have a point of view and they're and they're using it to advance that point of view. You know, I'm skeptical of that these days after doing this podcast for so long. And I like to have a think. I think sometimes writing should be more educational, should be more exploring of different point of views, but it's not easy. It's challenging and it's hard, but that's it, you know? So if, 14 years, here we are. Um, Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you can support me on the Patreon, I really appreciate it. I don't want to say the listeners write the show, but they've certainly had an influence, and there's been episodes that are totally listener-directed and took me to some great places. All sorts of uh, people listen, and I really appreciate it. You can join the Facebook site at My History Can Beat Up Your Politics fan discussion group on Facebook, or tweet at me at my hist m-y-h-i-s-t appreciate all of that interaction um look so we're just gonna keep moving forward here there's a lot of commercial podcasts and i think they're all gonna run up against a weakness they're good some of them are real good i just listened to um a great one about um california city um and it was a you know it did it 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 trailed off a bit at the end, but it was pretty good. There's always these new podcasts that are interesting. I love The Fault Line. They advertised for one episode, but I actually keep listening to them. It's it's no, uh, I was happy to have them as an advertiser, but uh, I'm also kind of happy to just endorse them because it's a good way to learn about the run up to the Iraq War from the British point of view. That's The Fault Line. There's a lot of people doing some good stuff, even on the corporate podcast. So we shouldn't be, um, you know, shaking our fists like the old curmudgeon type thing like i started this i i didn't but i do think that your independent podcast is going to be the one that are more likely to expand the medium and what it can do and i'm not sure a corporate podcast ever would have decided to jump into politics with history it's like whoa maybe i'm wrong and the beginning it's just you're just going to see their stories um sometimes exaggerated you know a lot of it is true crime casts and That's really driving some of the popularity. People like stories, people like mystery, you know, and there's a lot of that in history. Okay, so what are we going to keep doing? We'll just keep on keeping on here. Uh, I do believe that 2021 will be good. You know, you'll see some um, opportunities for casts with a new administration and a Congress, possibly either of the same party or the opposite party. We'll see about that. And either way, there's a lot to say with situational episodes, so we'll have those. I do plan to reach a little bit more into the 1890s as a project in 2021. So for 2020, my project was the Arc of Commerce and kind of doing, um, which I really enjoyed, uh, kind of doing commercial history of the United States to make sure we're capturing that human beings were not just political. They had jobs, and there were businesses going on, and it obviously pulls into politics. I think we accomplished it. I got one more episode to do on that. The next project is going to be the 1890s, which I feel is like the modernizing decade for America. And I feel it's something we're uniquely situated to do here that you're probably not going to see a one dreep podcast on. Let's just put it that way. We'll talk about a lot of aspects. Some of that uh, planned 1890s will be on this channel, and then some of it you have to go to Patreon to get. Sorry about that. Okay, so we'll take a few questions. Ophir Thaler writes, I'm aware of campaigns over the years aimed at getting rid of the electoral college, but has there ever been much talk of a shift in the actual model of government in the U.S., e.g. towards a Westminster system or the like? Well, thanks, Ophir. Um, No, I really don't think so. And a couple of reasons for that. One is the obvious, there doesn't tend to be much real, meaningful talk. I mean, I'm sure somebody said something at some time, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of meaningful talk about things that are difficult to change. And um, so, I mean, first, you got to get two thirds of the House and Senate or a convention procedure, which is even more difficult, you know, but might be used if Congress is just being obstinate on something and then get it out to... um, The states who have to pass it by three fourths, the highest constitutional barrier in anything of the state legislature. So it's very, very uh, difficult to pass a constitutional amendment. The other reason I think or fear is that um, in a republic with such a long history, right, a constitution being so revered, just talking about something like that could smack of a revolution, of Disloyalty, so no, um, you don't hear too much talk about some of this. One of the more radical proposals you have for something different, you know, usually involves the judiciary, where there's possibly a little more control than actually changing the whole system of government to say a parliament. I think, like in 1912, for instance, Theodore Roosevelt's proposals regarding the judiciary. PR said the court had made the Constitution a means of thwarting instead of securing an absolute right of the people to rule themselves. He took issue at judicial review, the ability of justices to look at a court decision and decide whether it was unconstitutional. For Roosevelt, and you have to understand the context, we're talking about minimum wage laws and other laws that are coming out of the progressive era that are just getting knocked down by judges. He thought There was a way to do this, and it would be to allow judges to make such decisions, but then to be able to recall them in popular election and or to have their decisions be subject to recall or referendum themselves. William Howard Taft, running against him in 1912, takes issue with it. Woodrow Wilson doesn't want any part of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. It really makes Roosevelt the radical in that election of 1912, which is kind of an election of of three progressives of different forms. That's probably one of your more radical proposals, and I don't think it's a coincidence that later Franklin Roosevelt's going to also try to change the Supreme Court. Parliament would not be the example that most Americans at the time of the founding of the United States would have looked to. You have to understand, uh, Parliament was extremely unrepresentative really into the 20th century. There was nothing near... It, we have some issues with our House of Representatives and how many the variances between the population of congressional districts and the like, but nothing compared to the parliament at the time of the American Revolution where you had these contrasts like the city of Birmingham had no representation, tens of thousands of people and workers living there, but it just wasn't considered in the drawing of parliament seats. Meanwhile, like a country manor. One house had a member of parliament and there were certain traditional family seats in the parliament. Um, Now, the British had made that decision that, first of all, there was virtual representation, which means every member of that parliament represented the whole country. That was what they claimed in any case. And then also that these legacy seats would invest in the person and in that family such a history that they would bind them to the country and the service of the country. And I can't say that was wrong in all cases. Obviously, it's not the kind of representation that a democracy wants. Uh, From the beginning, states have assemblies, legislatures, and um, the initial proposals, for instance, if you look at Thomas Paine's very popular pamphlet, uh, what he's calling for is a Congress. He actually doesn't call for a Senate. He just wants a Congress that will meet and run the country. Uh, Certain states have different governments, like Pennsylvania, for instance, had a plural executive, meaning more of a executive council like you might see in some town governments. One example is the Maryland Convention. So after it had been pretty much decided that in Maryland that they were going to shake off British rule, not necessarily declare independence immediately. In fact, the Marylanders were supportive of the Olive Branch petition and trying to work something out. Even even as independence was being voted on in Philadelphia. But they do have their convention, which in effect runs the state. And the Annapolis Convention uh, is an assembly of the counties. They agree that all 16 counties are represented by 92 members. They have a chair, but they don't have a governor. They allow the British appointed governor to be like the titular head of the state, but to have no power. They passed resolutions supporting Boston, ordering supplies sent to them. They said they'll meet when it is needed. They set up a committee of correspondence. They expressed their support for boycotts. In 1775, this convention goes as far as to approve armed opposition to British troops. Maryland's governor finally gets frustrated with his position of really having no power to enforce anything in the state. And as one newspaper says, he hoisted sail and went down the bay. Maryland had previously been against independence. After this action, they send instructions to their delegates to be for it, and they set up a constitutional convention to develop a new state government. So you had this um, convention of freemen, say, running Maryland, and that's kind of um, the preferred form of government in colonies. Nebraska to this day is the only state that retains a unicameral body, which is called the unicameral just one assembly essentially that uh, runs the legislative branch you know what you do hear about from time to time is talk about a constitutional convention and i think it's a funny thing and it could happen someday but it is a funny thing because i think both sides are deathly afraid of it will ryle writes did voter fraud really change the outcome of the 1960 election in favor of kennedy and if so what were nixon's reasons for not challenging it legally um, more urban legend, I believe, to that 1960s story because it involves like a cast of characters that are suspect, you know, including Lyndon Johnson and Daly. It's difficult to prove a negative. That's the problem. And it's not to say like it didn't happen at all, but there were allegations then and now, maybe just enough for some dust to be thrown around, but no one had any provable evidence. And I believe that's why Nixon didn't. He did say it was for the country and all, but I believe there wasn't enough to stand on there. He did actually allow friends to poke around with recounts. There were some recounts in some states. GOP did a recount committee in 1960. He made private comments about the election being stolen. I don't think it really happened. and, And at the very least, you have to say it's not to the level of evidence that history requires. The election's close. And so this discussion centers on two states, which would be Illinois and Texas. But it's important to note that 1960 is a 50-state election. Nixon's a poor candidate by any measure, particularly compared to Eisenhower. And I think that gets forgotten in this discussion. He'd get better and do better in 68 and 72. Kennedy, on the other hand, was a phenomenal candidate in the old sense of the word. He was a phenome. He was attracting huge crowds. And for a Democratic Party that had beaten down in two elections running against a war hero, Kennedy was doing better. You look at New York, Kennedy gets a million more votes than the 1956 Democratic ticket Stevenson-Keefoffer gets in that state. You look at California, the 1956 Democrats lose the state by 600,000. Kennedy loses it by just 50,000. Kennedy wins Connecticut by 90,000 votes. The Democratic ticket there, four years before, had lost it by 300. Wins New Jersey by 20,000 votes. The Democrats had lost that state by 756,000. Kennedy wins Pennsylvania by one hundred and ten, and in 1956, the Democrat had lost it by 600,000. You see the pattern here. There's an awful lot of states you have to start turning before we're going to write off Kennedy's win as something is just kind of like crooked and strange. But you do have to look a little at Texas, of course, and and Illinois, and you have to look at both of them because very often I think people will say like, well, something happened in Illinois. And look, in 1960, Kennedy won Illinois by a little more than 8,000 votes. It was very, very close. But it would have to be Illinois and Texas to actually turn the election in the Electoral College. Okay? It gets a lot tougher with Texas. So let's start there. Texas is a Democratic state then anyway. Eisenhower just happened to win it, wins it by 200,000. He's a war hero. So Kennedy, with a VP candidate who's a senator from that state, chosen for that reason, wins the state by 45,000. It's not strange at all. There's also the Coat riot, an incident where Lady Bird Johnson is insulted by a Republican, or you could say John Bircher types, in a Dallas hotel very widely reported around the state, kind of lost to history a bit, but it's it's an October surprise at the end of the election, and that really helps to turn the state, in addition to having Lyndon Johnson on it, back towards Democrats. That's really the way to look at it. It's not surprising that in 1960, Texas votes for Kennedy. It's going to vote for Humphrey. It's going to vote for LBJ, and it's going to vote for Carter. So in the next four. It's going to vote Democrat in the next three out of four elections. You get to Illinois. Okay. And it's fair to say, you know, the, you have the Richard Daly, powerful machine in Chicago. And there's no doubt Daly's a Kennedy friend. The Kennedys are just as powerful in Chicago as they are in Massachusetts. They own the Merchandise Mart. The Merchandise Mart is like the World Trade Center in that city, at, the, at least at that time. Daley not only wants to do well, he wants to get the Chicago out vote out early so that it's seen in the West Coast so they give up hope and maybe Kennedy can win California, which he nearly did. I mean, that's how – so look, there's no doubt Daley's looking out for, for Kennedy. There's also no doubt that there were some irregularities with all of Chicago elections, Daley's elections in history. Was this one more – Did Chicago have a political machine? Did other states have political machines? Did suburban counties in Illinois have political machines? Well, we know that there were some accusations both ways that some of the suburban Illinois counties might have been holding vote back. Here's from Clout, Mayor Daley and his city, Len O'Connor. Evidence that vote fraud was working both ways in the November 8th, 1960 election came about midnight when Senator Paul H. Douglas, appearing on the NBC network television, grimly charged that whereas Cook County Returns had posted virtually in full for two hours, few reports had been filed by many of the Republican counties of Illinois. I serve warning on you, Senator Douglas, who is a Democrat, declared, wagging his finger at the cameras. The federal district attorney has been ordered to investigate immediately the apparent refusal of the clerks in these counties to do their duty and comply with the election laws. Those who are refusing to comply are to be arrested and prosecuted. It was not a bluff, O'Connor writes. The senator running for a third term had exacted from the district attorney a promise that federal agents would be dispatched immediately to investigate the complaint, making arrests as necessary. Even before the senator and Mike Hollett, his campaign manager, had a cup of coffee and left the newsroom, almost complete returns were pouring in from counties that had not previously been heard from. Stealing votes apparently is one thing, running the risk of being arrested for it, is something else. I don't think O'Connor quite has it there either, but at least you see there about some of the allegations that generally were going on in Illinois. But here's the thing. I mean, the majority that Kennedy wins by is going to be half the majority that LBJ wins Chicago by. Kennedy's getting a pretty normal Chicago vote amplified by the fact that he's the first Catholic running for president in a city where there's many Catholic people and that he's a better candidate than Stevenson was, and that Eisenhower was a war hero who won Chicago, actually, and uh, Nixon is not that. Oh, there's other factors that just go to that 1960 election. There was a brief um, little recession. Um, You have the TV debates and the performance there. Uh, You have the issue of um, the missile gap. turned out not to be really the case. But, you know, there's a lot going on in that presidential election to, to. I just don't see it, how you get to Texas and Illinois. And I think there's a little bit too much conflating of Lyndon Johnson's first Senate election, or actually second Senate election in 1948 against Koch Stevenson, who was probably cheating too, but where there is documentation that in a primary, there were votes added to some of the boxes. And that's something that Robert Caro has done a good job. Does that translate to all the way to 1960 and 45,000 votes in a general election, I don't think so. But that's it. Thanks for the question, and you know that's that's as much as I'm gonna get into at this point. James Dixon writes in the fans of my history can beat up your politics discussion group. I keep thinking about Tilden v. Hayes. Bruce, do you see any potential parallels like tight election, contested results, Democratic House, Republican Senate, or am I in the tall weeds? Well, James, thanks for um, asking me. And you you did ask right after the election. And so I'd say no. I'd say, as you you know, this was before I did my podcast on 1884. That's where I kind of put it. But there's no exact election here. In fact, even since I did the 1884 cast, the vote totals have changed to the point that there's almost a um, looks like it's going to be a six million at least difference between Biden and Trump in the popular vote. So even 1884, doesn't really apply here. Nineteen sixty doesn't apply here. You know, there's no exact comparisons in politics. So if 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 you're starting to see this idea that we have to go to the legislatures, we have to go to the canvassing boards and the state canvassing boards and overturn what was clearly the reported results, and um, you know where you can link each vote to a voter regardless of how they were, the votes were cast and a difference between that and what the canvassing board or legislature might count, and you're actually going to overturn that, you're getting to 1876 because that is precisely what happened. I mean, there was a vote, there were election totals submitted by all the precincts, and then at the canvassing, the state level, three states decided to just count in the Hayes electors and just do it. And the rest is history. One could say, hey. Well, there's a historical example, Bruce. So we we can do it again. And yeah, I mean, you can make that argument, but I don't think 1876 is a, a good example to follow for uh, for history. But thanks, James, for asking a question. I figured this question was coming along. A question from Justin Muller on the fans of My History can beat up your politics Facebook site. What happens if a president refuses to leave after losing an election? Well. Why would you possibly ask that question? I can, I can understand. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it. This never happened. Nothing like this ever happened. I mean, of course. So we're um, talking about conjecture. There was a Texas governor. His name was Edmund Jackson Davis, who during the reconstruction, who decided not to leave. And um, in the 1873 election, he was defeated. He claimed fraud and refused to leave the office. The interesting thing is he he sort of concocted a case in order to prove the fraud of the election and sort of like had a voter vote who was unqualified that was set up. And then when that voter was allowed to vote, called the election constitutional because there was a court case. So it was, you know. He was a Republican, so at that time was President Grant. He appealed to President Grant, give me troops, help keep me in power. Grant, at this point in 1873, was not looking for new interventions. It uh, was getting to be unpopular in the north and declined. Davis uh, left from being hunkered down in the basement, became a lawyer, tried to run for governor again, and and was not successful. Here's the way I'm going to answer it. There's been too much focus since 2015. It's It's Really, one of Trump's skills is to be able to get the focus of discussion on him. So we're talking about what if Trump doesn't leave the office? Well, my answer is it's it's really about Biden. Biden gets the Electoral College. He's counted by Congress. He's the president. He's inaugurated. It's up to him how he wants to deal with the situation if something like that were to happen. So Biden decides the power goes to the man. The power does. There is no mention of the Oval Office or the White House and the Constitution. The the actual holding of a space does not incur any with it any authority or power. Okay, if you're going to talk about legislation, who's going to veto or sign? It's going to go to that person wherever they are. If they're on an uh, Air Force One, if they're on, if they're in the president's room of the Capitol. Very nice room where I think Trump spent the first hour of his presidency signing EOs. He could run things from there. He could run things from the Herbert Hoover building, oddly enough, where Biden would be as president-elect as soon as there's an assertion of of him or if he either gets that from the administration or from a court, that uh, by statute, they have to have a space for the president-elect, and that's where that's designated. It's a nice Art Deco building, by the way. To be in Wilmington, it doesn't matter. That's where power goes. So uh, a lot of this discussion, um, I presume that anyone who would stay beyond their time, noon on the 20th, without any constitutional power to do so, might be starting to incur a um, crime that didn't exist before, you know, afternoon. They're no longer protected by the clause that says – The only way to regulate a president's behavior constitutionally would be through the impeachment process. Well, you can't impeach them, so it goes to the court. So you have the potential for creating a new crime there, and there's all of these reasons. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Mook on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. David Murray writes, I bet this has been asked recently and maybe covered. I don't get mad if I missed a few episodes, but when has this country been this divided? Obviously the Civil War, but two parties so partisan that nothing gets done? How do we get out of this? Okay. Well, it's fine not to listen to episodes. Listen, I've done a ton of recording over the past year, particularly the election. And uh, at one point I attempted to do 99 stories about the election. And I abandoned that probably with good reason. But a lot of that is in an episode called Don't Run for President. So like if you're going on a long car ride, that's the one to pick. Otherwise, yeah, generally podcast listenership is down. Mine um, According to my host, Libsyn, everybody else's as well, at least 30% down. I mean, there's no commutes or there's less of them, you know. So anyway, all good. Doesn't matter. There'll be plenty of time. I'll probably slow down a little during the holiday can catch up. Uh, so David Murray uh, did ask. When has the country been this divided and all of that? I'm going to say this, and it's going to be controversial. The American presidency, which is the lightning rod of all political conflict, has almost always been hotly contested since its invention. Between most of the time, two types of parties, sometimes multi-party, usually two types of parties. You can call them Federalists and Democrat, Republicans, you can call them Whigs and Democrats, You can call them Republicans and Democrats, but that's generally what we're talking about. There's very few times in history when it's been like, oh, we don't care who wins and who gets all of those offices and all of that power, even when America wasn't the superpower in the world that it is today. So, I mean, you can think of a few times. There's like the 1804 election. That's just a blowout. That does not mean that Federalists didn't want to win it. They just could not. There is the 1820 election where James Monroe, I talked about it in that podcast, like he only has a single elector that votes against him. However, I will point out that even in 1820, you know, probably the the era of good feelings, there's that one elector that votes against him. He hates Monroe. He hates the VP candidate, Tompkins. He makes it clear he wants John Quincy Adams who's going to get become president later and a newspaper that's supportive of Tompkins and supportive of Monroe attack that single elector so even in that election there's a there's a kind of attack but okay i sort of get it i still think you know multi-party conflict differences of opinion has always been high You may have seen it in newspapers instead of a social media. I may have been arguing on theglobe.com back in the 90s on some forums instead of Twitter. But I didn't see a lot of people giving up on their political positions then. And I don't see it throughout history, whether it's the time of cobblestone newspapers painting Washington as a Nero or Red Scares, Palmer Raids, college kids as enemies to the state in the 1970s. Or Clinton and Whitewater, where I remember very vociferous. And all you have to do is look up um, the Clinton killings video where this guy was trucking around this VCR tape of all the people that uh, the Clintons had killed. uh, To know that there's always been politics in the 80s. I mean, many a family had debates about Reagan. Reagan was kind of omnipresent in the 1980s. I get it. There's probably a little more personal attacking and we're all like wired more maybe. So I think the frequency and the intensity perhaps has increased, but no, do not think there's any time in American history where there's no partisan difference like this and people didn't feel strongly about it. Really strongly that Cleveland had ruined the economy and every time Democrats got into power, they would ruin the country. Except there was another group that thought the same thing about Harrison or James Blaine. I believe it. when I started the cast, I still believe it now. This is just one of those questions. I just don't see it. And even where there might have been more of a reach out or bipartisanship, I still think that in all bipartisanship, there is a little bit of gaming. It could be as simply as there's a Democrat in a state That's normally a Republican senator from New York, which you haven't seen in quite some time now. You have somebody like a Javits or the person that beat Javits in a primary, Al D'Amato, where they have to, on certain issues, say Social Security. Don't touch it with them. And they were called like Gypsy Moss at the time. Um, Or you have your Bow Weevils like your Charlie Wilson. The movie was done about him. Where again... I think it's bipartisanship. It sounds good. It's also a bit of a game playing because someone like a Charlie Wilson, a Democrat in um, Texas. I'm thinking of Charlie Stenholm. I think I have his name right. Where it's like, you know, you can get more out of a Democratic party that's afraid of losing a seat in Texas than you could just being one of many Republican congressmen. So they, there was sort of some gamesmanship behind all that bipartisanship too. So I think those are important things to consider. I really think what's happened recently is the frequency of political discussion, the fact that you're going to your phone, scrolling down and seeing it constantly, has possibly increased. I don't know, though. Okay, enough of that. Thanks for your question. Dan Marshall asked me, I keep seeing pictures of San Francisco's masking mandates during the flu of 1918 and 1919. I was wondering how widespread those rules were and were they really enforced? Yes. But San Francisco suffered greatly in the pandemic, um, influenza 1918. The first couple of waves hit San Francisco pretty hard. It's a city, obviously, by the bay. It has a lot of traffic from all around the world. And so it was hard for it to, um, to close out, you know. You had a country like Australia, which did decide to close its ports. Nothing like that happened in the United States. I will refer to, in sort of doing my best to answer your question, uh, Laura Spinney, who we had on in 2017 in her book, The Pale Writer. And here's one of the things that she says that the great influenza happens. It was the first post-Pesturian flu. So we knew about the germ theory of disease, and it was widely accepted. All right. These aren't people that think it's evil spirits, although there was still some of that going on. People knew that microbes were causing. The flu. Okay. Well, actually, they were wrong about it. They, that once they, like anything, you know, once the science was developed, there was an over fascination with it and people it had actually developed. Here's the bacteria that's causing flu. Well, they were wrong because it was a virus, something that they didn't really understand much yet outside of the laboratory. So public areas were closed, schools, theaters, and cities. People were, there were public announcements that said people should sneeze into handkerchiefs but keep windows open because if it got warm, microbes could form. So kind of this halfway mixture in some places, for instance, in Japan, everyone was wearing these gauze masks and that came to the United States as well. And just like now, people that say would operate a streetcar, you know, or a police officer, they would be likely to wear it because they're in contact with so many people. Officials did disagree about whether masks work to reduce transmission. Here's what Laura Spinney writes, cities were more vulnerable to infection, but there was a puzzling variation between cities. Exposure to the mild spring wave by some cities and not others might have buffered those that received it and explained it partially, but an effective disease containment strategy also had an impact. One 2007 study showed that public measures such as banning mass gatherings, imposing the wearing of masks, and social distancing cut the death toll in those American cities by up to 50%. This is Laura Spinning and the Pale Writer. Here's the thing. She's writing that book in 2017, has no idea COVID is coming. So it has nothing to do with 2020. This isn't a blog from like just written last week. This is her book in 2017 when we had that talk. When I, you know, just kind of thought it would be an interesting historical topic then. They had to be introduced early and kept in place until the danger had passed. She's writing this in 2017, because if they were lifted too soon, the disease was then presented with a bunch of new naive hosts. Yeah. Uh, So San Francisco, 45,000 infections, 3,000 deaths, and what you had in late 1918 were protests from civil libertarians, uh, naming themselves the Anti-Mask League, protested the the wearing of masks, and sometimes they would... uh, do civil disobedience, and be arrested. And Here's from a uh, meeting of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Gentlemen, we, the committee delegated by the Anti-Mask League, which in mass meeting assembled to the number of 45,000 in Dreamland Rink Saturday, in fulfillment of our agreement, then made appear here today to respectfully request that you repeal the so-called ordinance, number 4758, familiarly known as the mask ordinance. We earnestly pray that the people be granted speedy relief from the burdensome provisions of the measure. Miss E.C. Harrington, Chairman, Anti-Mask League. Supervisor Nelson requested that the above petition be referred to his honor the mayor with the request that as soon as possible he use his efforts to cause the removal of the mask, which he declared was an infringement on our personal liberty. Well, here is what Mayor Rolfe of San Francisco says. Back to this. The mask ordinance is law. When it is no longer deemed necessary, the mayor will issue the proclamation providing for its repeal. I have been following the daily reports of influenza cases carefully, and I was pleased to see in the papers yesterday the number of new cases had been reduced to 12. This is 1919. I am in hopes that I will hear from the Board of Health shortly that San Francisco is free from the epidemic and that the mask can be removed. What surprises me is that I have no request from any others except the members of the Anti-Mask League who come here. No petitions, no personal appeals have been made to me, the mayor, by anyone to hasten the removal of masks. To me, the people of San Francisco are happy to follow this law. So there you go. (laughs) 1919, folks. Um, What to say about all of this? Well, again, you know, I'll just point out this is one of the distinctions I see on this issue. Obviously, one way of looking at it is kind of the libertarian aspect of it, you know, individual rights versus collective needs, let's say, to put both of those in their best footing. There's a difference in science like then and now they were, well, we're not sure the masks do anything because the germs can get through the mask. And they're absolutely, you know, we're right in that it turned out that a vi- viruses that they largely didn't know enough about could actually go through the fabric of these gauze masks that were. But from a public health, you know, consideration of the large group of people, studies were showing different things. And I think that's a different dimension. That's an interesting take on the debate, too. I find very often in this debate, one citing, if they're citing science at all, that there's like people that don't want to wear the mask, you're, having some like individual type experiments or something are citing that. And um, those four are citing the public health. Well, there's different types of sciences, different types of data. But you're absolutely right. Cities were engaging in measures. I do find it interesting that Laura Spinney said back in 2017 that uh, Europe was a harder place to institute a mask mandate than the United States in 1919. Those libertarian Europeans And thank you, Dan Marshall, for asking that question. I'm going to go on Twitter. My Twitter is at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T. James Natoli writes, are landslide elections a thing of the past? It's hard to imagine any candidate winning 40 states, like 64, 72, 80, or 84 anytime soon. Okay. So, uh, good question. And I don't think in the current politics, like the way they were set up, there was any chance that that was going to happen in an election like today. Yes, it could happen. Absolutely, it could happen again. Um, What you need, though, for that to happen is for one candidate to be receiving a lot of, say, bipartisan or just cross-American support. Um, So, two of the elections you cited are the same person, Reagan, in 80 and 84, and part of the reason the 1980 election was more than 44 states for Reagan and a disaster for the Democrats was that John Anderson, the third party candidate, was also taking votes away. And that um, really boosted Reagan's percentage there. But when it comes to 1984, it's just a win. I mean, 7% G- GDP growth in the old year of election that you're running, um, is going to do a body good, let's say in politics. And plus I think Mondale wasn't the most dynamic candidate. He did the, the most interesting thing he could do was the novel selection of a, uh, female vice presidential candidate, which it's taken. I mean, this is crazy, right? It's taken 36 years for that to actually happen for someone to win, but it was proposed then. Um, that action, though, was done because he was so far behind. I mean, that was one of the big – he needed something big to hopefully get a turnout boost and change the dynamics up. You know, there there were there were some issues that the Democrats had. I don't think Mondale was the greatest candidate. I believe that if Gary Hart ran, you know, Reagan would have had more of a fight. I think a lot of the Reagan people felt that way. Okay. So, landslide elections. I don't know. I tend to think, like, let's say – um you had George W. Bush right after 9-11, and then there was no invasion of Iraq, and that he didn't pursue anything too controversial, like his Social Security plan or his um, decision to give aid to uh, government funds to religious groups. These were his more radical proposals that um, were not popular and had to be abandoned, if those things weren't done and it was just kind of like a post 9-11, I think you know, might have seen a blowout election there, but I believe it got partisan. It can absolutely happen. You need a very weak candidate on one side and a candidate with bipartisan, or I'm going to say because there's, the parties don't always work in this situation, cross-American support for this to happen. You've heard about Reagan Democrats. If you haven't, I mean, my home state of New Jersey had places like Bayonne which just regularly voted Democrat, all of a sudden turned to Reagan in 1980. Okay, that's going to get you a landslide if that happens and if you can keep it going. Uh, Shauncey Burkhead writes, love the new logo. Also enjoyed the 1796 election episode. I think it would have been hard for anyone to be the first person after Washington. What was the John Adams and Washington relationship like? Well, here's Washington to Frank Knox on Adams' selection as vice president. To hear that the votes have run in favor of Mr. Adams gives me much pleasure. Here's John Adams to the same person, Frank Knox. I thought him perfectly an honest man with an amiable and excellent heart, the most important character of that time among us. And I think that's how a lot of the people, you get a similar reaction from Jefferson. A lot of the people would say about Washington, he was just kind of this demigod at the time. Um, The history largely is warm friendship between these two people. Adams supported Washington's candidacy to be general of the Continental Army. And it was something Washington coveted. And he needed Adams' support, being a person from Massachusetts, to get it. And I'm sure that was appreciated. Adams says at the time, There's something charming to me in the conduct of Washington. A gentleman of one of the first fortunes upon the continent leaving his delicious retirement, his family and friends, sacrificing his ease, and hazarding all in the cause of his country. That's not to say, as many members of Continental Congress, which Adams was one of them, Adams did grow frustrated with the army's inactivity. They would call me mad and rash, but my inward feeling is I would put more to risk if I were in his shoes. My toast would be to a short and violent war. Well, you know, easy to Adams say, right? He's uh, a Congress um, backseat drivering uh, a general, right? The first time and that would ever happen, right? <laughs> this was only in a letter to his wife, by the way. Uh, but the Congress was not always supportive of Washington, so his known feelings may reflect some discussions that Adams had. As to Washington felt about him, he never got much out of George Washington, uh, kept the cards close to the vest. He defended him in several letters. But the only complaint I can see may be more of a heading off of criticism of him. Uh, He does describe John Adams as high-toned and criticizes him for even having the appearance of pomp. When David Stewart of Virginia raises the alarm that he hears John Adams is riding around Philadelphia in a carriage and six horses. While Mr. Washington is seen walking the streets. I've never seen him with more than two horses is what... Washington replies. (laughs) Thanks, Sean. And about the logo, yes, we have a new logo for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Appreciate everybody who uh, weighed in and helped with that uh, because I, I could use the fans of my history can beat up your politics as a bit of a focus group, and that was great. I want to thank you for listening the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com a reminder about the patreon which you can join over a 100 content items there thanks for listening